When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At a time when the state of Florida has become ground zero for those who want to silence the voices of so many, we at Books and Books found it critical to bring Chastin Buttigieg to the Miami area to celebrate the publication of I Have Something to Tell You, the memoir. Ellen DeGeneres echoes our thoughts when she writes, sharing our stories can encourage others to feel less alone. And Chastin tells his with courage and compassion opening the door for younger generations to create and live in a more inclusive world. The response was overwhelming, so enthusiastic that we partnered with the Carl Gables Congregational Church to accommodate the hundreds who came. Chastin was joined in conversation with the Deputy Executive Director of the National LGBTQ Task Force, Myra Hidalgo Salazar. Pastor Lori Hafner welcomed our guest on this week's edition of The Literary Life. Good evening, I'm Lori Hafner. I'm the senior pastor here at the Coral Gables Congregational United Church of Christ. You know, every time we gather as a church community, we offer up these words of invitation that no matter who you are or where you are on your life journey, you are welcome here. And yesterday, as part of our special pride worship service, we included these words, or who you love, or who you choose to travel your journey with, because here in this church, we believe that love is love is love. Our theme for the week is Hero Hotline, and we are indeed surrounded by some real superheroes and sheroes this evening, starting with the wondrous Mitch Kaplan and the staff of Books and Books. I dare say it's the greatest independent bookstore a community could have and who makes these kind of meaningful events happen. Also partnering with us tonight are some real heroic organizations who are doing work among the LGBTQ plus and our wider community. This includes Mosaic Miami, Pride Lines, Aqua Bi and for LGBTQ women, P-Flag Miami, Save Inc. and Save Foundation, Safe School South Florida, the National LGBTQ Task Force, and American Civil Liberties Union. Let's just give them all a big hand. Our superheroes for this evening include our guest author and speaker, Chastin Buttigieg, and moderator, Myra Hidalgo Salazar. Myra has been organizing for immigrant and LGBTQ plus justice as one of the catalysts and founders of the immigrant youth movement for the past 14 years. She is part of the first generation of undocumented youth in Florida that began courageously sharing their stories and organizing as both LGBTQ plus and undocumented immigrants. She is recognized as a national expert and organizer on queer and immigrant issues, and she currently serves as the deputy director of the National LGBTQ Task Force and the National LGBTQ Task Force Action Fund. And Chastin Buttigieg is a teacher, an advocate, and husband of a former presidential candidate who I think we all learned to fondly call Mayor Pete during the last election. They have two children, Guess and Penelope, two rescue dogs, Buddy and Truman, these are the important issues here, and they now live in northern Michigan. 
And I have to say that I believe with everything inside of me, they are a couple who together will help change our nation for the better. So. Chaston's book, I Have Something to Tell You for Young Adults, is his second book, and I could not be prouder than to present him and Myra to our superhero set. Please help me welcome them. I love this. No, I'm sad I left my cape at home. <laughs> I feel like I'm back at theater camp. Hi, everyone. Happy Pride. That's it. <laughs> Chastin, I can't explain to you how thrilled I am to have this conversation. I think there is so much darkness that you can talk about when it comes to Florida politics right now. And these programs, these events that just breathe more hope and life into this political moment, I think are not only important for our survival, but I think it's also important to show that we can and we will win. So thank you so much. So I think it goes without saying, um, and as we can see in this room, there are people of all ages uh, that are inspired by you and your story. What led you to wake up one day and say, I'm going to write my story, and why make it accessible to young people? Yeah, the, the first book had to be so many things. Um, in, in politics, I, I, it felt like the memoir is supposed to be a very specific type of memoir. And for anyone who read the first version of the book, you'll know that I I didn't um, meet all of those requirements. Um, I sort of bucked the idea that everything should be buttoned up and polite and that we shouldn't talk about our feelings or our vulnerabilities or our fears or the, the bumps along the way. And I learned so much about myself through all of those failures or traumas or experiences. Um, but it was hard to pack your childhood and all of your experiences and then presidential politics into one book. Um, this book, however, I just wanted to write the book I wish I would have had in eighth grade. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that the publisher agreed it should exist. Um, I just wish I could travel back in time and hand young Chaston this book um, to focus specifically on identity, on all of the fears that I was harboring when I was younger, and all of the lessons I learned once I grew up, if only young Chaston could have known what was in store. Because uh, growing up in rural conservative Michigan, I did not think that there was ever going to be a way out, that there would ever be this day, there would ever, there would ever be this ring or these two beautiful kids in my life. I was so focused for so long on the idea that it was all gonna add up to nothing. Mm -hmm. So I know, because I have met, there are so many other young Chastons across the country, whether they're in rural Michigan or here in Florida. I've been able to sit at those tables and have those conversations with young people. And so while things have gotten a little better, I know that there are still young people out there wondering whether or not they belong and if someone really cares. And so this was my way to say, yes, you do. Thank you so much. I mean, what comes up for me in that answer, Chastin, is just how much LGBTQ people, how imaginative we have, have to, we have had to be about our futures, right? There's no real model to follow uh, sometimes, especially if you grow up in a home that is not fully accepting. Um, so as someone who's now on the other side of this, right? You, you have this life with your partner, your children, um, your dogs, and you can, and you can speak about this from a healed place, what would you say to a young person right now that's struggling with imagining their life uh, at this stage, right? Or, or 
their life at a stage beyond, right? Um, in, in 20, 30 years. Yeah, I remember growing up and then even when I came out, you know, my, the first 18 years of my life, I didn't know that it was okay to be gay. Mm -hmm. um, and then w even when I came out, I remember people saying it gets better, it gets better. And I just thought that was a, a load of hogwash. You know, and everyone keeps saying it gets better and you're wondering, well, when? When will it get better? Because it certainly isn't better right now. And then tomorrow comes and it didn't get better. Um, the thing about it getting better is it only gets better if people commit to making it better for you. If people join in the fight to make it better. My life got better because I finally met a friend who told me it was okay to be myself, who allowed me to you know, start cracking the closet door open. Life got better when, after I ran away from home, my parents called me back mm -hmm. because they cared more about keeping their kid alive than the opinions of their church or their friends or their community. Um, so, so many blessings in my life came from other people wanting to make it better for me. And for the young people, Sometimes I feel like I always just have to apologize on behalf of the adults, because mm -hmm. now I am one, I guess, right? Yeah. Um, that there are adults in this country focused on making your life harder and not better. They're focused on making it more unsafe rather than safer. And rather than addressing specifically young people, I will always say it does get better, but it is on us, the adults, to make it better. It's on parents and teachers and allies and advocates. I think this Pride Month specifically, mm -hmm. we have to remember that there are still young people, and this is a, a bit of a different stump speech in Florida than it is, you know, um, not in Florida. Um, <laughs> but it's so good to be here. I love it here. Um, <laughs> This is a season for active allyship. Allies have to ask themselves, have I given myself that title or have I earned it? And if you're a parent, please tell your kid that you love them unconditionally. Even if you think you do, have you told them that? Have you told them that you will love them whether they're gay or straight or bi or trans? Have you told them that it's okay to be a football player or a mathematician, or you can be a football player and a mathematician? Whether you want to lift the heavy weights or bury your nose in books, you will love them unconditionally. So my parents were very giving people, very, very loving people, but we didn't talk about gay people. And so I assumed they, hated, they would hate me mm -hmm. the moment I came out. And so for young people who are looking out and wondering whether they truly belong in this country, it's really on us to make sure that they know they do. Thank you so much for that. Uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm also one of those, those lucky folks that comes from a very accepting family um, that I think is also a, a story that's not shared enough, right, about, about Latino families. There's a stereotype of us maybe being, you know, um, especially homophobic or, or transphobic. But I would have to say my parents are um, my biggest advocates, not in spite of my queerness, but because of it and, you know, a model to follow in that way. And, you know, I think for those that aren't as lucky, right, um, it's, it's critical that we are finding a support system, right? Um, so queer people, depending on friends, is kind of the tradition of how we've made it this far. You know, the concept of chosen family um, that I now that I know now is used um, much more frequently. It's that actually came out of the queer community when so many queer people were being rejected from their homes and had to seek support systems elsewhere. Um, so when you were able to cultivate that support system in your life, um, can you share a moment where having that support system gave you the courage to make a major decision? Yeah, um, so I studied abroad in Germany my senior year of high school. And 
I really only went because I was trying to get as far away from Michigan as possible. Um, I, this opportunity arose one day where our German teacher told us about this fully funded scholarship to study abroad in Germany. And fully funded was really important because my family would never have been able to afford that. And so I thought that would be the selling point to them. Uh, and it turns out they just didn't want me going on to the other side of the world. Um, so in my first act of rebellion, I forged my dad's signature Ooh. on the application. I know, me. <laughs> such, a, such a rebel. Um, I never broke the rules, ever. And I wanted it so bad. And so I got the invitation uh, to come to the interview. And then, long story, you'll read it, right? You're going to read the whole, OK. So um, <laughs> why are you telling us the whole book? Um, to Germany and I make a friend who is so different than my friends back home very direct in a lovely German way and yeah <laughs> okay we have one German here um, and one day she just said something is up with you something is going on and I finally told her you know I, I think I'm bisexual because I thought that maybe if you were only a little gay, it was better, you know, it wouldn't be as disappointing. And then in this lovely, very direct German way, she said, you can also be gay. And I remember asking her, are you sure? Because I really, I didn't know. I had been raised to believe that if you were gay, something was wrong with you. And I finally had a friend who just said, yeah, you can be gay. It's no big deal. And I, I, I kicked down the closet door for three months. Um, but then I had to go back to the States, and that's a whole different chapter. So, I mean, there's nothing like coming out in a new city, though, I have to yeah. say. Oh, I... Oh, my God. In Europe, you know? <laughs> very eat, pray, love. Um, <laughs> Although I, I'm sorry, I wasn't doing a lot of praying. Um, you know, it looks different for different people. Um, but to answer your question more specifically, having a person affirm your identity, to look you in the eye and say, I will love you no matter what, changed my life. It gave me the confidence to not only come out to her, but to come out to myself and acknowledge that um, and move on with my life. And like I said, it's a whole other chapter, but because I had a taste of that confidence, a taste of that freedom, I could only stay in the closet so long when I went back to the States. Yes, and you know, I think that the journey to self-love and self-acceptance is just so, it just rings clearly through your memoir. Um, there, is, there is a point where you mentioned nobody hopes for a gay child um, when thinking about finding the courage to come out to your parents. Um, and, you know, this fear even drives you to pack this bag um, in case you're kicked out, right, before having that conversation. Um, and then in the next few pages, you go on to share that your biggest regret was being so hard on yourself. Do you think that this fear limits us from accepting ourselves fully? A hundred percent. And I'm a big proponent of mental health. Therapy is incredible. You should try it if you can. Sometimes they give you tea. Um, I, I took a lot of therapy in college um, and after college to accept the fact that I hated myself for 18 years. And when you go through life pretending to be one person, that homophobia seeps, seeps in and it takes hold. And um, I just wish I would have known what it was like to experience all of those things, childhood, high school, being fully myself instead of pretending to be someone I thought that the world wanted me to be. And it's so important that we have these conversations with our kids mm -hmm. that they are loved unconditionally because I just wish my parents would have said that when I was 13 and I could have just focused on being a kid. When I was 10, you know, I... I believe I started getting the idea of what was going on around third, fourth grade. 
and just imagining what what, have, what life would have been like had I not been trying to hide and appease everyone and just leaned into being myself. Um, and that's why I think writing stories like this is so important, to not, to not only offer someone a mirror into that pain and to let a young person know, like, I've been there, I have felt that, and I promise you it does get better, but to also offer their straight peers a window into their life to understand what someone who, you know, is living alongside you might be going through. Mm -hmm. I think there's there's so much power in the indirect and I think even more direct messages that trans and queer youth are facing in this political moment. And um, I related so much to even, you know, you talking about Will and Grace and all of these sitcoms that started coming up because I think we're around the same age. And it's interesting because you and I were were we came of age during a time where it seemed like visibility for LGBTQ plus people was really what was gonna get us there, what was what was gonna help us win. Um, and you know, we're now seeing that visibility and I guess the backlash, right, from, from that visibility. What do you think is missing, right, in terms of the stories and images of LGBTQ people in this moment? Um, well, queer joy. Uh, we are happy. Um, we're happy people, and I. There's something about Ellen and Will and Grace. I remember seeing them on television, but it felt like I write about how it kind of felt like a luxury, mm -hmm. like you could be gay in New York, yeah, um, but not in Northern Michigan. Um, and Ellen and Will and Grace kind of taught me that if you were going to be out and you were going to be the butt of the joke, then you might as well be funny. And I think that's where part of my performance came from. I wanted to be funny. I was very performative. I was obviously in theater. <laughs> but I was so focused on like entertaining everybody and making everybody laugh because I was afraid that the moment I drop the shtick, then they will figure out the big secret. But right now, I want to see just more stories um, that aren't about trauma. Mm -hmm. And I just want to see joy. One of the things that I... I've discovered in reading a ton of children's books to my kids is there really aren't a lot of stories where there are just two dads existing. The story yeah. isn't about the fact that there are two dads or two moms. Um, it's like, I will go to a bookstore, like, do you have a book with two dads? And they're doing n nothing. And like, they're just there and, you know, I don't care what's happening in the story. I just want my kids to see a family that looks like theirs. And every book I am recommended is like every family's different it's okay to be different and it's like you're different you're different you're different um so i started working on one but mm. there should be a thousand of them you know yeah. there, every that we should have more shows more books that just allow it to be normalized for especially this new generation that you and i were talking in the, mm -hmm. in the green room about how this newest generation kind of doesn't recognize mm -hmm. the fact that it's such a big deal um, so I just want to see that, yeah, I know. Like, what are you guys doing? Um, I want, I just want my kids to grow up in a world where they don't have to be dragged through all of that trauma. Um, that, especially if one of them is LGBTQ in the future, that the stories that they're watching aren't all about loss um, and pain. They can just be about joy. Joy. Well, you know, we're also, I think there's a lot of joy in understanding not just the strides we've made in visibility, but I think also the political power that the LGBTQ community has flexed, right? Um, we're also in a moment where the majority of people in the United States support LGBTQ equality, and yet we're still faced with this harsh political climate with our issues. People are spewing hate um, because it's easier to continue to attack us, um, especially our trans and gender non-conforming siblings. And you talked about this a little bit in your book, um, but can you share with us how we can shut out the noise and harmful people around us? And why is it important to define ourselves than to cave to hate around us? Okay, so like a really easy question. Um, <laughs> I'm here all night. We, so my kids have been really great teachers to remind me that I hold 
a great power when it comes to social media, and that is I get to push the power button. You can turn your phone off. The thing about social media is that, and the world, I guess, if you go hunting for the BS, you're going to find it. You will always find it. And especially with the new algorithm on yep. um, Twitter, it's like every time I open that app, I get punched in the face. You can laugh. Um, and then I ask myself, why did you ask to get punched in the face? It's like, what's the world doing punched in the face? It's so gross out there right now. Um, and there are people who are emboldening the worst of us. And then there are bots and all of that stuff to worry about. My kids, however, are real. They're right in front of me. And they just want their dad to play with them. And we should focus more of our attention on the things that are real and tangible in our life rather than going and hunting for the negative. You, when you, I can sense this with a younger generation, especially uh, when we're talking about social media in particular, that the idea that an injustice exists on the internet, it should be solved. That someone said something hurtful, someone said something offensive, or someone said something that's not true, and therefore it should be corrected. However, it will exist there. And there are other people who have made that their mission and their sport. You, however, can turn your phone off and walk away and recognize that those people are still going to be there, that comment is going to be there, and you get to decide how much weight or importance that person gets from you. Um, as a middle school teacher, I had this loose standing rule with my eighth graders that um, every day you get one ticket, and I kind of use this in my, our marriage too, <laughs> you get one ticket and that ticket allows you to complain about whatever you want to complain about. And so especially with teenagers, they'd be like, did you hear what so-and-so said? And they were doing this like, is this the thing you want to spend your ticket on today? <laughs> and they'd be like, uh, no. I'm like, okay, all right. Like, peace and blessings, you know? And then sometimes, they're like, did you see this thing on the internet? Like, is this the thing you want to spend your ticket on today? They're like, yes. Like, all right, go for it, you know? But if we think if we go through life just thinking we have like 50 tickets in our pocket we're gonna be miserable yeah so use this in our marriage too especially <laughs> Woo. <laughs> have y'all seen washington <laughs> uh, it's usually pete asking me if that's the thing i want to spend my ticket on for the day but um i just try to focus on the things that are right in front of me and the things that are real and all of the goodness that comes from being a good dad and a yeah. good husband and being happy the thing about some of these figures on the other side of the aisle is that they really hate that we're happy. They do. We're happy. I'm proud. I am proud to be who I am. I am proud to be Gus and Penelope's dad. I'm proud to be married to my husband. Things I never thought I would have in my life. I survived the closet, and I'm here today. And gosh darn it, I'm really happy. And they can't take that away from you. They're going to try and try and try to rob you of that joy, and don't let them. And every now and then, I know this sounds a little flip, it's okay to revel in their misery. Just a little bit. They're so miserable, and you're so happy. And if you made it out of the closet alive, celebrate that joy. Celebrate your existence, especially this month, you know? You want me to get off my soapbox? <laughs> I'd get, I'll I get only down. have one more, and I think we only can Only one more? Only one more. And we can open up for Q&A. Okay. And, you know, on this topic of, of young people, you know, we know young people, millennials, Gen Z, and, you know, coming up after them, Joan Alpha, are becoming more and more engaged in our democracy and in Gen our Alpha. communities. I know, Joan Alpha's next. When does that start? I don't know, but my nephew's with them, and I have to say that Gen Alpha, they're the real honey badgers. <laughs> they're the real honey badgers. They just don't care. They just don't care. They get what they want. Um, so... You know, I have to say that as young people are becoming more and more engaged in their democracy, um, 
and they're they're they've already flexed you know their political power in in this past presidential elections like it really showed and and in midterms as well like young people really led the way um and i remember for myself when i started first publicly sharing my story as an undocumented and queer woman at the age of 17 it was scary to like step up and and speak out um when there was just so much unfairness, you know, happening in my community. I grew up in Polk County. Um, Some of you may have heard about Sheriff Grady Judd. Um, (laughs) That is the sheriff, I like to say, that made me um, the amazing organizer I am today. Uh, (laughs) And so, you know, I think in that moment, it, it was scary to come out both as undocumented and queer um but what i learned along the way is that you know oh my god there's a community of people i'm building behind me um so can you share with us just to close like what is the power in sharing our stories um and what is the difference that people here in florida young people here in florida uh can make in sharing our stories when it comes to transforming the politics of the state Absolutely. We, we have to find a way to center those real stories in our politics. Um, and just from like grassroots level politics, there's data that shows that people are more likely to vote uh, for someone you want them to vote for or vote a certain way or care about an issue if they know someone connected to that or someone that they know and love or trust has asked them to. I think this is why you might see families like mine, um, someone comes out and they're like, I never knew a gay person, and then they kind of change their tune a little bit, you know? But that's because they loved me. And then when something is so real and it's in front of them, they're faced to confront that. Um, And so centering reality in our political conversations, when we empathize and connect with people on something as simple as keeping a child alive rather than a talking point on the internet. Um, Mayor Hunchowski's here from Parkland, um, uh, or your representative now, excuse me, and we were talking um, a little bit about gun violence and how it's a little different when you're talking about the kids that you love the kids you want to keep a lot. I feel like I get more of a connection with people talking about gun violence when I share my experience as a teacher and my classroom was surrounded by windows um, and I was on the safety committee. And something that we had to have in the United States of America, right? Um, and that my reality every day as a teacher was the fact that if something was gonna happen, it was probably gonna be bad for me and my kids because of all of the windows. Um, when I am able to tell that story and talk about my the teacher, then I feel like someone listens just a little bit more. So when we're organizing, trying to connect with people on real lived experience is important. And the thing I love about this upcoming generate or generations now, you're telling me, does that make my kids? Oh my God. Um, the younger generation is so focused on correcting the BS. And the thing about being queer in this country is you don't want that to be the sole purpose of your life. So many queer people don't want to talk about being queer. We would like for the climate to get better. We would like for gun violence to be managed. And when I'm talking with young people around the country, they're scratching their heads wondering why the people in positions of power are focused on less than 1% of the American population and focused on making their life a little bit harder and not the fact that it's almost unaffordable to be a teacher in the state of Florida. But that's, that's a real problem, chasing jobs out of Florida, chasing women out of Florida, chasing families and LGBTQ people out of Florida. That's a real issue. And so keeping, keeping on that message, you see young people leading the way in that. Like, why are you focused on me? Like, okay, I'm queer, but like, that's not the only thing. I also have student loans to pay. I have a climate that I would like to live in for the next 90 years, right? I would like to be able to put car insurance on my car in the state of Florida, uh, but that's almost unachievable. So when we talk about the real issues, and I think especially in states like Florida, 
You've got a lot going on. And the number one enemy is not a trans kid just trying to stay alive in school and reminding people in positions of power, standing next to those young people who are already marching in the street, reminding your elected official, actually, we sent you to the state house to get stuff done and to make our lives better and easier and safer, not to just attack some trans kids so you can raise money off of it and run for president. So let's start there. So I can sense in the room, we maybe have some uh, folks who are eager to ask Chastin some questions. And Christina has kindly offered to pass the mic. So if you have any questions for Chastin or I, there we go. Chastin, what is the best thing for you about being a dad and what have you learned from being a dad? Oh, thanks. Um, well, they, it's like when you go to the optometrist and they put the right lens in front of you, right? Like everything just comes into view. And that means every pain hurts more and every joy just makes your heart want to burst out of your chest. Um, and when we were talking about like social media earlier and political nonsense, it's the fact that my number one job is being a good dad right now. And I used to be so online. I used to be like absorbed in politics and the news, um, especially the presidential campaign just kind of sucked me into that you know, void. And then uh, now I've, I'm pushing a stroller down the sidewalk rather than scrolling on my phone, right? And my kids have helped me, like, look up. And they're so obsessed with, like, buses and birds and trucks, you know? And so, like, pushing a stroller down the sidewalk, it's like, bus, big bus, bird. And, and Gus waves at everyone and says hi. And it just kind of reminds me that, like, this is the most important thing that you can do. Um, and to invest my energy there, but also to just be grateful, so grateful for the fact that I'm here and that they're here. Um, and you know Gus had his health scare and then I had my health scare and the fact that we're here together, it just makes me so, so grateful every day that I get to be in this family and I have this family, you know? And so when I do get punched in the face on Twitter, it just, it's, it's so much easier to say, that doesn't matter, this is what matters. And I'm very, very grateful for that blessing. You're a teacher, a middle school teacher, of children with two dads. And here in Florida, that, that's an issue. A teacher with um, the child being in the school having two moms or having two dads. An issue for who? The issue for the children is what I'm thinking of because there are parents who are hurtful, other parents, and the people who need to be there to fight the fight are pulling their kids out of the school and the teachers are leaving yeah. for fear of being targeted. And that concerns me, and I wonder if you have thoughts about that. Oh, I've got a lot of thoughts about it. Yeah, so like I was talking about, the most important thing in front of me is my I can focus on my kids. I want to raise my kids to be empathetic and curious compassionate about what drives them um, and exactly <laughs> I can do that that's the job I can do and if I spend too much time worrying about all of the injustices in the world that will take me away from being a really good dad um, so that's that's right in front of me but that's also right in front of all of us the real work is sitting right in front of you, the people who need you the most, your community that needs you the most, the organizers on the ground who need you the most, and your money. They need your money. Donate your time, your privilege, and your power to people who really need you. That is where you can focus your energy. So folks who want to make it an issue about whether or not someone has two dads, their agenda isn't that two dads shouldn't exist. It's, uh, I need something politically expedient that will allow me to raise a bunch of money and get some clicks. So, I know we don't have like time for the TED Talk tonight, but I really do think so much of this political nonsense is driven by a party that has lost its mooring and it doesn't know what it is anymore. And politics is supposed to be hard. 
It requires rolling up your sleeves and getting stuff done. The reason you send someone to the State House or to the White House is so that they will make your life better. But the thing that they've acknowledged that we talked about is that it's actually quite easy right now to just attack vulnerable people rather than do the work. So it's not that I think every Republican thinks that the kid with two dads is the big enemy. It's I think they've identified that the kid with two dads is much easier to attack than work. Um, and my hope that we'll get to the point where maybe they will find their mooring again, or um, we'll just take the state house back, that other people will start doing the work. But here's the other thing. Those people are always going to exist. Maybe one day, you know, they won't. I already know that I am raising my kids in a world that still isn't quite ready for their family yet. So I can focus on my family and make sure that my kids are at least, hopefully, the nice ones in the classroom who understand that it's okay to have two dads or two moms or to live with your grandma or to have one parent. How did you come out to your dad? I didn't come out to my dad. I ran away from my dad. Um, I wrote a letter to my parents, um, and I gave it to my mom. Um, but I had already packed my bags, um, and I apologized, which hurt the thought that you had to apologize for existing. Um, and then I left, and I, I couldn't face my dad. So I guess I never really came out to him. And then, obviously, mom told him uh, why I had run away. Um, and then it was just kind of always there um, until we had the, the conversation much later um, about how he didn't care. Um, and part of telling their story, it's so important to me to tell their story in the book because not everyone gets a parent like that. Not everyone gets to go home, you know? And the fact that my parents put that love ahead of everything else, um, it saved my life. And then you grow up and you, you're sitting and having a beer with your dad and he says, you know, you know I didn't care. I used to mow the lawn for this gay couple in high school. <laughs> but uh, yeah, crazy, right? But, Imagine what my life would have been like had my dad told me that he mowed the lawn for a gay couple in high school. And he's like, everyone knew that they were gay. You just didn't talk about it. And then the kids would call me the slurs in high school because I mowed their lawn because he dared touch their grass. There's so much there to unpack that my dad and I could have been talking about when I was younger, but we just didn't talk about anything. So, But you've also shared that you're a middle school teacher. So... I would guess that you interact with a lot of middle schoolers. Yeah. And you've seen the journey, and there's been a lot of, I'm not sure how long you've been teaching, but I also have worked in schools for a long time, and I know that in the last 10, 15 years, there's been a big change of youth finding their own identity earlier, right? And, and the, the beauty in that, you know, being able to discuss that. And I guess my question is, how much has that interaction has been that observation from a teacher perspective, right? Because you're looking at yourself in middle school, but not really, right? All these other youth that you guide influenced uh, what you put in this book and how you presented this book. There's so much in here for like straight peers as well. I really wanted this book to be accessible to every reader. I've been the eighth grade teacher doing the book studies, and uh, actually one of my biggest fears is that it wouldn't be relatable because I wasn't allowed to use many of the words that they would prefer I use in eighth grade. Um, they're, they really like the F-bombs uh, in eighth grade. Um, that's the other thing about so much of this political climate is like, have you ever met an eighth grader? Do you know what they're reading and saying? My goodness. Um, I, I was afraid that they'd be like, this is written for a third grader. Like, you're not talking my language, you know? Um, the idea that more people 
are achieving equality or happiness or a sense of identity should not be frightening to anyone. And the, the idea of progress is that more and more people will not have to live their life in the closet or die because of it. And so making sure that we're doing whatever is necessary to allow young people to stay alive and find their identity and find their voice, shouldn't we also want to celebrate the idea that they might just be figuring it out earlier? Like I, like I was saying, I hear these words coming out of my mouth and I just know that there are publications in this country that would flip the idea that I just said that. I knew in third and fourth grade something was up. I just didn't have the language for it. And the only language I was getting from my church at the time or my 4-H group or my community and my peers was that that was wrong and twisted and something about me was broken and I was probably going to hell because of it. And if a young person has a little bit of an idea of who they are, then there is a larger conversation about making sure that their family and uh, their teacher is able to have a conversation about what it will take to make sure that that kid knows that they are accepted and welcomed. And it's okay to be on that journey. Um, this is also uh, an issue, again, that I think is so conflated in our current po political climate. Um, not every kid walks into school and is like, I'm gay and I want to talk about it. You know? Um, Although more and more that's happening too, which I think is kind of cool, um, to just like go through life knowing who you are from a young age and being able to focus on all the things that make you a kid and or make you a happy kid rather than focusing on the world hating you um, is a miracle uh, to see that kind of confidence. But I think we should be happy that younger people are finding their voice and their identity and a sense of purpose and self earlier. Um, I don't know why certain political people are so inclined to push kids into the closet. The data is scary, I guess I should say. When one in two kids who identify as trans in this country will contemplate taking their own life, that should scare us. As a person of power or privilege, you should be frightened and motivated to do the right thing to keep kids alive. And I don't understand why they're so frightened by that. Frightened by a young person just knowing who they are or trying to figure out who they are. You should want to help, you know? And they twist that language, they twist that journey they, and make it into something disgusting to drive a cudgel between the American people um, and parents and teachers. Um, that data alone should make us want to do the right thing. Thank you for coming to Miami and thank you for being here. Um, I admittedly, I, I know that being gay is not the entirety of one's identity. There's so much more to it, but I can't help to like, I want tea. Like, did you meet Cher? Like, have you met Dolly Parton? Like, give me something cool about the trail. Like, Something that, like, gay royalty only knows. Like, I just want to know something that you met on the trail that was oh. really cool, that was just, like, amazing. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much. Yeah, you know, when we, when we came out here, though, I wanted to say, like, everyone just take a deep breath. You know, when's the last time you really took a deep breath? Um, and to just look around this room. All of these people love you. In this space, you know, all of these people want what is best for you. All of these people want you in this community. They want what is best for you in this community. They will fight like hell for you in this room. And so just thanks for reminding me of that. Oh, we should end on a really positive note because um, it's pride. Meeting Cher. Um, Part of this really ridiculous life is that you do get to do just really cool stuff sometimes. And if only young Chaston would have known. You know, I write about that in the book. Like, you have no idea what your life is going to be like and the things that you'll do and the people you'll meet and the goodness that will come from you just going out there and sharing that story. Um, and because I guess they did that, we were invited to meet Cher at this event. How many people are recording? 
Okay, so I love my husband. Oh, he knows who you're, okay, he got that far. Um, he's getting better, you know. We've been listening to a lot of ABBA Golds at our house, and um, <laughs> the kids love ABBA, and we listened to it in the car on the way to daycare, and he came home from work the other day, and he was like, I've had Super Trooper in my head all day. And I just love the idea of him sitting in some important meeting at the White House singing Super Trooper in his head. But um, we go to this event with Cher, and uh, it is like a room of 100 gays freaking out that they're about to meet Cher. And then there's Pete Buttigieg, who is the only person in the room touching the charcuterie board. Is a charcuterie board like the size of that table, nary a gay touching it. Because why would you eat an olive when you're about to meet Cher? And I walked up to him and I was like, what are you doing? You're about to meet Cher. I was like, what, there's free food. No. So that morning we were staying, um, we were at a hotel and I remember um, we both like, someone came out of the bathroom and someone was getting dressed in the bedroom and then we looked at each other and we were wearing the exact same outfit. And I was like, well, one of us has to change. And, you know, he wears the same thing. So I had to put a sweater on. And then, are you all in this story with me? So Cher comes out into the room and uh, it's like no photos of Cher. Only Cher's provided photographer will take the photo of you with Cher. There's a lot of lighting and stuff involved. And um, we get up to meet Cher, and they were like, you know, they introduced Pete, and it's like, and this is his husband, you know, like, whatever. Um, I think I was at the boyfriend at the time, actually. And she says hello to him, and then she turns to me, and I, like that little gay boy who never thought this would be his life, I, she was like, nice to meet you. And I was like, well, you know, this morning we were wearing the both the same thing. We like woke up and then we were like, we were in this hotel, and so like he was wearing the same outfit and I was wearing the same outfit. I was like, you got to change. And then he was like, no, you got to change. And so like I put the sweater on, and so like I'm the one wearing the sweater and he's not wearing the sweater. And Cher just looks at me and goes, okay. Um, and I thought that. Like, I caved in and myself, right? It's like, you idiot. Like, we're taking the photo with her, and like, that's the thing you said? That's the thing you said to share? And then just as we're getting ready to leave, she rubbed her hand on my shoulder, and she said, you are so clean cut. <laughs> and now, if I'm ever having a bad day, <laughs> Pete will try to do his best share impersonation. <laughs> like, hey, you're so clean cut. <laughs> so there's the tea. She's wonderful. <laughs>